The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, America. This is Pete Macca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I do have a very special guest today, Marty Broderick. Facebook. And in due time, discovered we both served with the intelligence section of the 306 Bombardment Wing at McCoy Air Force Base. That was a B-52 Strategic Air Command Base in Orlando, Florida. Marty arrived at McCoy a few short months after I left for Vietnam, so basically I think he may have been my replacement. This morning is the first time Marty and I have discussed our service at the same base, in the same intelligence section during the Vietnam War era. Marty, my service brother that I never met until... Yeah, you broke up there, Pete. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, that's okay. I said welcome to the program there, Marty. (laughs) Well, thank you, Pete. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on, and it was a pleasure to meet you. It's extremely rare that I meet somebody that did the same thing I did in the military. There was so few of us. Well, that's true. That's true. And, folks, I'll tell you this uh, uh, in advance. If you hear some talk in the background, Marty said that he has, what, Amazon and a couple parrots that may talk. So we may be interviewing a couple parrots. But we (laughs) will survive. (laughs) Marty, (laughs) Marty, where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in Tampa, Florida. In fact, I was born born on MacDill Air Force Base. My father was in the Air Force since uh, the late 30s, so I was born right there on MacDill Air Force Base. I um, had a buddy stationed at MacDill. I didn't know your father was in the Air Force, huh? Yeah, he uh, was a tail gunner during World War II on the B-17s. He served really? World War II, Korea, and in Vietnam. He didn't want to leave the military, Pete. They finally said, you got to go. You can't stay here no more. Wow. Uh, uh, did he tell you about some of his experience as a tail gunner on the B-17s? Uh, like a lot of men had been in combat, he did not like talking about it at all. You know, he just wow. told me what he did, but he didn't go into it very much at all. It was, He lost a lot of friends, and it just brought yeah. back bad memories. I know he did, and, and it's rare to find those guys. I've interviewed a few that were in the uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, but those guys are just about all gone now. Yeah, uh, there is. Uh, my father passed in 2002. Uh, I had multiple uncles that served in World War II, both the Eastern and uh, European theater. I mean the uh, Pacific and the European theater. So, And, in fact, I've got a... I had a brother, he's passed now, but he did two tours in Nam as a helicopter pilot. Oh, wow. He uh, won the Silver Star there. Wow. It did. Uh, uh, where was your father stationed with the B-17? He was stationed in Europe. I don't remember what base now. It goes back a long time. Memory's not okay. what it used to be. But he was stationed in England. They were bombing Europe. Wow. And then he was stationed in Korea during the Korean War, and then he did a tour in Nam. 
he got out, and if I remember right, because like I say, memory's not what it used to be, but he got out, and it was either the very late 70s or early 80s. He was in there forever. He retired as a um, senior master sergeant. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Marty, every time I hear a story about the guys that served in all three wars, I think about the story that I missed. Uh, I miss writing and I miss interviewing those guys. Um, man, okay, uh, when did you join the Air Force and why? Um, I graduated high school in 1966 and then come along about 67 because the draft was going strong. I knew that there was a chance I would probably get drafted, and I've always been a conservative. As long as I can remember, I can remember back to the third grade. I enjoyed studying the Constitution, studying our forefathers. So I, I had a, uh, I was patriotic. I felt like I had a duty to serve my country. So I went ahead and joined the Air Force in November of 1967. Well, you're on the right radio station. I can tell you that we are very conservative, very patriotic. I guess we're those gun-toting, Bible-toting people, but I love them, and I love this country. And uh, What Mark Twain say? Mark Twain said, loyalty to country always, loyalty to God when it deserves it. And I, that's correct. <laughs> and I think that's a, a, about it. Uh, what do you think about your basic training? Do you even consider that a challenge? Yeah, for me, when I went, when I, you're... Same way, Pete, you went in about the same time. Basic then's not like basic now. Back then, uh, if you talked back or said something you shouldn't have said or did something you shouldn't have done, D.I. would knock you on your butt. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a, a wake-up call for me. First morning I woke up in basic, I thought, oh, Lord, what have I done? <laughs> I remember that. But, I mean, the, the you know, I played sports all my life, and I remember the Air Force um, – we call it the confidence course, not the obstacle course. Right. But, uh, I ran it twice. A couple of my buddies and I, we ran it twice. It wasn't that much of a challenge, but uh, it was. Yeah. It was. To, it was good training. Uh, I enjoyed yeah. it. Uh, the physical part, I had no problem with it all, Pete. I was, uh, although I didn't play sports in high school, I was always very active. Before I went in, I was weightlifting. I enjoyed running. So the physical aspect of basic training wasn't a problem. The mental aspect of uh, being woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and told to take everything <laughs> out of your barracks and set it up in the yard outside and then have to put it all back, that was a little challenging. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was challenging for a lot of guys. Did, uh, w when you finally graduated from basic, did you receive your uh, orders for intelligence school immediately or did you have to wait for a while? No, I actually got them when I graduated from basic training. Uh, I don't know when you went in, if they were doing it, but when I went to the recruiter's office, Pete, you had what I called the, or we called the dream sheet, and you could pick what job professions you wanted to do. And uh, I looked at the list, and one of them was photography, and I was always into cameras, loved taking pictures of my girlfriends and sites, so I thought, eh, I'll pick photography and the other one said intelligence and i thought oh that's cool spies i'll pick that well when i got my orders i was the only one that i can physically remember that actually got anything related to what they picked on their dream sheets 
I don't remember filling out a dream sheet. Uh, quite honestly, I think the only thing they asked me what we want to do, and I said I want an airplane. <laughs> it's pretty pretty simple. Right. But man, when I graduated, they everybody got their orders except for me, and they sent me to the uh, 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 what they call them. I forgot the construction people on base, and I busted up concrete for about three weeks until the FBI checked out my background. Yeah, I was about I to say, they hadn't finished your FBI background. Yeah, yeah, they interviewed everybody but my dog. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was sort of a shock to me. And when I got my orders for AIT, they didn't even tell me what it was. They just said, shut up and report. I went, well, okay. <laughs> uh, don't like it, I'll go AWOL. But now you went to Lowry Air Force Base, just like I did, in Denver, Correct. Colorado. Tell me, uh, we'll get into the intelligence school in just a minute, but tell me your first impression of reporting to Lowry Air Force Base in Denver, Colorado. Well, um, when I flew out of uh, Lackland, we flew into Denver, and I was a Florida boy. I hadn't seen snow. I hadn't seen ice. hadn't really seen cold weather. You know, low 30s, that's about it. We landed there at nighttime, and as soon as I walked off the plane, I fell on my butt because my shoes were too slick for the runway. This is before they had those uh, quarters they bring out to the airplanes. You walk down a ladder onto the runway, and then you walk to the terminal. So I got in there and got in the barracks. It was nighttime, pitch black, couldn't see anything. And woke up the next morning, looked out the window, and there was the Rocky Mountains. And I was, like, amazed at how pretty it was there. And then I immediately became amazed at how cold it was. <laughs> I do remember that very well. And I think we we were discussing this right before the show started. But you uh, you were very impressed with the Rocky Mountains, and uh, you did a little bit of exploring. Tell me a little bit about exploring the Rockies. Well, I just I loved the mountains. I was just fascinated with them. I was always into westerns as a kid, so I always watched the westerns that showed the Rockies, but while I was on base there, I was lucky enough to find a guy that would want to sell a car, and I had money saved up, so I bought his little Volkswagen, so on weekends, I had my own transportation to be able to go explore where I wanted to explore. I went up in the mountains. Uh, I found old mining shafts that I would go in. I didn't go far in because they were dangerous, and it's before there were cell phones. So something happened. Nobody knew where I was. But I would go in 15, 20 feet in there until it got real dark and just look, see if I could find anything laying around, any old pan, gold pans, picks, or anything. Uh, never did really find anything, but um, I enjoyed exploring it. Uh, I'm just, with my buddies and I going up to the ski lodges, and we tried snow skiing, which was great. But I also remember the snow on the side of the roads that was, it was taller than the car. Some places it was like stacked up, you know, seven, eight, ten feet. Uh, How do you maneuver that little Volkswagen through all that snow and ice? Very carefully. <laughs> you know, they, I had to be careful where I pulled off that I could be sure I got back on. And naturally, I hit some ice patches, so I was slipping and sliding here and there. But I was able to maneuver and get around okay. Like I said, it was before there was a cell phone, and 
I was smart enough that I knew I had to be careful because I could get into a predicament I might not be able to get out of. And it wasn't like I was on interstate. I'm on these old mountain roads, these right. two-lane roads, and there's not that much traffic. You know, I may not see three cars in five hours or four hours as I'm riding up through there. I just <laughs> enjoyed exploring it. Been back multiple times since then. I fell in love with the Rockies. Oh, it's God's country. I love the Rocky Mountains. I remember also, Marty, driving to Breckenridge, that we we drove across a dam, and to the left, beautiful, beautiful, crystal clear lake, uh, you know, surrounded by snow. But at the bottom of the dam, I mean, it was a big, huge drop, about 300 feet or more. Right at the base of that uh, dam was a small town. And I kept thinking, mm-hmm. boy, that dam breaks. Those people are done for. Did you ever cross that dam? Not that I can remember right, straight offhand, Pete, but I do remember uh, a lot of lakes. Um, I don't know which one you were talking about. I do remember some dams there, but I just don't remember where they were at, you know, or what. Um, I did run into a lot of canyons. I did a lot of hiking where you'd look out, and it would drop 500, 600 feet before it would even think about starting to arc out away from the cliffside that you're on. So you yeah. have to be careful. Yeah, yeah. I remember walking in that snow, and it all looks the same until you step in a hole that you can't see and uh, go go down about 10 feet of snow. I remember that. Uh, yeah, you were, you were talking about snow drifts. I've seen snow drifts where just the top of the telephone pole sticks out maybe two foot, and then oh, yeah. that's it. Absolutely. All right, Marty, we're going to our first break. Folks, stay with us. Uh, Marty's going to tell us about his experience in the United States Air Force Intelligence School in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I attended there, too. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at firearmliquidationservice at outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Marty Broderick, one of my brothers from Air Force Intelligence. Uh, All right, uh, Marty, you are in intelligence school. Tell us about your first day in intelligence school and what you thought about it. Well, intelligence school was a lot of fun. Um, You know, we worked with uh, stereo glasses so that you would be able to look at pictures 
put two pictures together and it made it 3D. Uh, for me, it may have been different for you, but for me, intelligence school was kind of hard. Uh, there was a lot of studying to do, and you were allowed, it was broke up into different sections. The school was about six months long, and it was broke up into different sections. And you could fail one section and still pass the course. But if you failed two sections, they reassigned you to something different. And I didn't want to go into anything different. I already had my mind set that I wanted to be a photo interpreter for Air Force Intelligence, which is what my assignment was. So I did fall, uh, fail one in the middle of the course by about two points on the exam. So I was nervous the rest of the time there that I wasn't going to make it, although the rest of the time I passed them with plenty of uh, room to spare, so to speak. But it was interesting. Um, you know, we worked with a lot of old pictures of the Cuban Missile Crisis. We were looking at um, pictures of the Russian sites in Cuba. They were basically teaching how to look at uh, uh, spy plane photography, how to look at satellite photography, how to tell what's down there, if there's a steel plant, how much steel does that plant put out. So it was... Um, it was very interesting. At that time, there was no such thing as computers. We worked with um, calculators, not calculators, I'm sorry, slide rules. They had special slide rules that were made up for Air Force intelligence. In fact, yeah, yeah I think I sent you a picture of one. Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember the first thing you were told in intelligence school? I do because it was special. Did, did, they, did they shock you with anything? The first day of intelligence? Not that I can remember other than I was told I couldn't talk about anything we did for basically ever in a day. But for years, you couldn't talk about anything. But that also went when I was working, you know, at McCoy. It wasn't just intelligence school. But I don't remember what you're talking about there, Pete, to be honest. The, the first thing they told us, they said, don't believe anything you read and only half of what you see. <laughs> and I, I have remembered that all my life. And then they told us about um, Gary Francis Power, you know, the U-2 pilot that was shot the down? The U-2 pilot, yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes, sir. Over Russia. Uh, they keep saying he was shot down. Uh, we were told in intelligence that what happened, the, the Russian MiGs were zooming up as fast as they could trying to get within range of him because his uh, engine had faded out and he dropped a little bit. And he was restarting the engine, but one of the Russians actually fired a, a, either machine guns or a rocket at him. I forgot which it was. But the other Russian MiG got in the way of the other MiG and hit the MiG. And the explosion from the MiG, some of the debris flew up and it hit Gary uh, Francis Power, and that's how he got shot down. Yeah, I heard that it was a rocket, but. Uh... I don't remember, you know, the whole story now. It's been so many years ago, but I did know the story of him being captured. Yeah, yeah. And also, when we were uh, doing some photo recon work, there there was a photo of a little island. I mean, this, this guy, this little island was about the size of the city block. And mm -hmm. we were supposed to identify the airplanes that were there. Well, any idiot would know they have to be seaplanes, okay? Uh, we, we, we had guys putting down they were bear bombers and MiG fighters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't believe that. 
right, what what else stuck out for you in intelligence school, Mario? I guess what was your favorite subject? And uh, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about it. Well, my favorite. I just loved looking at the pictures, using the uh, stereo glasses to make them 3D. So I enjoyed looking at them. You know the pictures and uh, identifying what was down there, and it was amazing what you could see that had been taken from, you know, fifty thousand feet up. The detail you could see on the ground. So that's that's what amazed me. I was always into photography even before I went into service, so I enjoyed doing that. Um, when you when you were in intelligence school, did you see any foreign officers also at the school? Uh, yeah, we did. There was a couple there. And that now that you mention it, we also had in there a Navy SEAL who had been injured in Nam, and he couldn't go back yet. He wanted to go back, but they wouldn't send him back just yet, so they assigned him into there just as to get more training. And he was part of a SEAL team that had gone north of the DMZ, and... Memory's not what it used to be, but if I remember right, of the team, only him and one other made it back. And he was wounded, which is one of the reasons they wouldn't send him back just yet. He wanted to go back bad. He had already done two tours, and he wanted to go back for his third tour. But I do remember him, and I do remember there was some, a couple foreign officers there. Well, I was there in 67, before you were in intelligence school, and... We had officers from the Middle East, from Israel, uh, Iraq, uh, Jordan, Egypt, Syria. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe it. And they were all communicating together. I mean, the Israelis, they were acting like friends. And then all of a sudden, the 67 Middle East War kicked off, and the next morning, they were all gone. They were gone, they yeah. Gone, they had gone back to fight each other, and we heard that when they went to the airport and got on airplanes... They all shook hands and they wished each other the best of luck, and they went off to fight each other in war. Very strange. Very strange. Yeah, that would be strange. Okay. There. All right, you got your orders after intelligence school. You were assigned to the same base that I had been at, the 306 Bombardment Wing at McCoy Air Force Base in Orlando, Florida. I had just left for Vietnam, so basically you may have just taken my place. I love flying yeah. on the B-52s, and I know you did, too. Tell us about your assignments with the 306 and your flights on the B-52s. All right, Pete. Uh, when I got to McCoy, um, hang on just a second there. Sorry. When I got to McCoy, you know, it was exciting for me. I was from Tampa, so I was close to home. I lucked out when they stationed me there at McCoy. But... Uh, at that time, that was the height of the Cold War. My jobs there, I would draw up uh, Army strip charts, flight charts, for the B-52 pilots and put the charts together, which was basically just a map from McCoy to their targets in Russia. And it was one continuous map folded. And, you know, with your uh, turn points, your radar points, release points, it was basically just a road map leading from McCoy all the way there. And um, I spent a lot of my time doing that. It took a lot of time to put the maps together to figure out the routes for them, and we had to do it for each pilot. And there was a bunch of pilots, 
like I say, it was the height of the Cold War. At that time, Russia was flying bear bombers over the Arctic Circle towards the U.S. And then they would use their satellites to see where our fighters and 52s took off from. And uh, if you remember the movie Failsafe, Pete, that's basically what they were doing. They would fly off to this failsafe point and then circle around until they figured out if the bombers were still common or if they turned around and went back the other direction. It was just a game that they played, and it was a nerve-wracking game because we didn't know if it was real or not. We didn't know if they were coming on over. Like I say, it's the height of the Cold War. So you just play in World War Three, twenty four hours a day while you were there. But That's I did true. Get to fly on. I got to fly on the B fifty twos, and that was probably one of the best things of my time in the military. I enjoyed flying on them fifty twos. Oh, I did too. I absolutely loved it. Explain to the folks why the Russians came over the Arctic, and why we would also go over the Arctic. Oh yeah, we did the same thing. Being that's the shortest path between Russia and us. But when they would fly, they would use their satellites to see what bases our fighters took off from, what bases our bombers took off from. And they were just gathering uh, military information. And then we did the same thing. It wasn't like it was a one-way street. We would do the same thing and then use our satellites to see where their planes responded from. And, I mean, they would literally, we would launch every 52 on base that had a nuke on it. And they had just a couple minutes from the time that clanker went off till them planes had to be rolling down the runway and off the ground. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, it's strange that the Russian bear bombers, they're, they're prop jobs, and they're still being utilized by Russia as their main bomber. And we're mm-hmm. still utilizing B-52s, uh, which is our still our main bomber. And it's probably good until the year 2050, I believe. And there, there are no pilots uh, behind the controls of the B-52 now that are older than the airplane. That's no, amazing. that's true. <laughs> that is, that is true. Did you, when you were plotting your missions, did you get into uh, terrain avoidance? Yeah, we had terrain avoidance. Uh, basically, on the charts, we would mark, well, here you've got to... Descend in altitude. Um, I'm sure you remember that, Pete, but when they went in, they were rolling 50 feet off the ground trying to avoid radar to be able to get close to the target itself. And, yeah, they had to avoid, but like you say, because they were flying so low once they got into enemy territory that there was all kind of trade avoidance. And, you know, we had to draw a path on the map, and then we gave them a corridor uh, a couple miles wide either side of their path that was still safe for them to veer because, you know, they couldn't fly and stay exactly on that line. But they stayed within their target box. Now, when you have terrain terrain avoidance, uh, we've got about a minute left for the next break. Explain terrain avoidance to the people. You know, uh, the radar scope looks like spaghetti when when you do terrain avoidance. Explain that real quick for us. Well, like you say, Pete, it does look like spaghetti. Um, That was part of my job was to draw what certain things would look like on radar. And that was why I would fly on the 52s because I would take my drawings and compare them to the radar screen to see how I can improve it. Uh, A bleep 
blip of a mountain, maybe I didn't make it high enough. By comparing it, I would look at it and know, okay, this one should have been higher. I would look at the altitude on it and realize my drawing, I'd made it too low. So I flew on the 52s multiple times to be able to compare my radar drawings to the actual screen because you know you have a radar drawing of what your turn point's going to look like a radar drawing of what your release point's going to look like and they yeah, look at that yeah it's so important to that save men's lives when you got it right all right we're going to our next break folks stay with us we'll be right back with some more fascinating information about the b-52s Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Thank you so much. If you have lost a loved one and were left with a firearms collection and are not sure how to dispose of them safely, or you may have firearms you no longer want, this message is for you. I am a licensed FFL firearms dealer in the state of Florida, specializing in estate firearm purchases. It is very important that all firearm transactions be handled according to state and federal laws. You can contact me for information at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or you can call or text me at 407-921-8100-247 and ask for James. Again, for information contact me at Firearm Liquidation Service at Outlook.com, or call or text me at 407-921-8100. All communications are strictly confidential. Hi, this is Rocky Blair former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with my intelligence brother, um, Marty Broderick. Marty, uh, when you were at McCoy Air Force Base, you flew on the B-52s. I found it odd, I don't know why, but we had to share the airport with the civilian airport. You remember that? Yeah, that's true. There was one runway that they rented to the civilian airport. The uh, Orlando's airport was actually um, right off of 408 in Orlando. Now it's just an executive airport. But some of the planes needed a longer runway, so the Air Force Base ended up leasing one runway there. So there was commercial flights that would land on one of those runways there, away from where the 52s were. Yeah. You know, when I first got there, uh, 
the first night they were revving those engines up uh, uh, on the flight line. I was half a mile away, uh, you know, just testing the engines, checking them out. And I said, how in the world am I going to sleep? I just got up and walked down the flight line and watched them for a while. But I said, I'll never be able to sleep. But, you know, after a while, you got used to it, didn't you? You get used to it after a while. That's true. Yeah. Uh, especially like when I was in Kadena, because we were supporting uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, we were flying bombers out of Kadena 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They were always taking off. My barracks was on a hill above the uh, runway. So... <laughs> I heard them when they went off. You just—it's a noise you got used to hearing, so you went to sleep. Yeah, I know, I know. We'll get to uh, Kadena was on Okinawa. We'll get to that in just a minute. You went there twice. Uh, I was just sort of shocked too when I got to McCoy and found out the base had a uh, golf course, which uh, I enjoyed. And then outside the base, do you remember you walked off the base and you went to your left, and there was some kind of a nightclub there. Was that still there when you were there? That was still there when I was there. There were several nightclubs there right outside the gate to uh, for the military men to go to. There was a couple restaurants, and then there wasn't anything for miles. That area was not built up when I was there. Now it's wall-to-wall of houses and businesses. I'm sure it is. Uh, boy, did I get in trouble with that nightclub often. Uh, you we, and me both. <laughs> we both served under uh, uh, Colonel Crandall. Uh, you said you had a story about Colonel Crandall. Go ahead and tell it. Yeah, um, Colonel Crandall was uh, my commanding officer. He was a great officer. He was a really nice guy. But for whatever reason, my first sergeant took a dislike to me. Don't know why, but I was constantly drawing barracks duty, and I would be late to work. And Colonel Crandall would be like, what's the matter, Marty? You're late. I go, I'm sorry, sir. I had barracks duty. I was cleaning latrines. He's like, well, you just had it uh, four or five days ago. I said, I know. Well, after about two times, maybe three times of being late, the colonel says, I'm going to fix this. He called the first sergeant up and told him, I don't know what's wrong, what you got from Sergeant Broderick, but it needs to stop. The next time he's late to work because he's on barracks duty, you're going to find yourself stationed in Alaska. And he told me, if you don't if you don't think I don't have the power to do it, you put Broderick on barracks duty again and see. <laughs> Strange enough, yeah, I never got barracks duty again. That was Crandall. That was Crandall. That's, I love yeah. that. Uh, he was a great guy. Yeah, O-R-I. Tell the folks what an O-R-I was. ORI is an operational ready inspection. Um, basically, a general would fly, land on the base, and say, all right, it's World War III, go. And we would start everything we had to do as far as launching B-52s. Every B-52 on that base would take off. We would lock ourselves down in the... Uh, the vault where we kept all the intelligence stuff and the pilots would fly to specific targets they were actually they were in the u.s we weren't going to russia but they would fly to certain targets and um, do a simulated electronic drop and then when it came back my job was had the film developed and then i had to plot their flight path to where they dropped 
and back, make sure they didn't get outside of their flight path, make sure the electronic release was done at the right time. But it was all done under simulated war conditions. Uh, they were nerve-wracking, to say the least. Yeah, I remember, it, too, that uh, you, you, know, you said that sometimes you didn't know they were coming. A lot of times we knew they were coming, and it was ridiculous. I mean, we had to paint the trash cans. We couldn't throw trash in the trash cans. And I'll tell you a story about Colonel Crandall, too. One of the officers that was checking everybody out in the intelligence section went down to Colonel Crandall's office to talk to him about something, and Colonel Crandall was looking at or reading a Playboy magazine. And the, o, the OR officer said, Sir, what are you doing? And Crandall said, I'm reading a Playboy. You got anything else to say? And the guy said, uh, No, sir. And walked out. That was pretty funny. And also with Crandall, this is the honest to God truth. One of the missions I plotted was for a B 52 going into Moscow in case of World mm-hmm. War III. And we had the, the IPs and everything else. But, of course, our nukes, you know, the missiles would have reached Moscow before our B-52s got there. But right. one, of the IP, one of the IP points was a radar, uh, I mean, a radio tower. And I went, wait just a minute. I went down to Colonel Crown's office and said, Colonel, uh, uh, we can't use this as an IP. And he said, why? And I said, well, it's going to be melted down by the time the big 52s get there. And Colonel Crandall thought for a minute, he said, just tell them to drop the bomb on the big glow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, did you, uh, you got your, your, well, you pulled two TDY, that's temporary duty assignments, on Okinawa. Tell me about uh, Okinawa a little bit. Let's go there. All right. Uh, like I said, I was in McCoy about, four months or so and found out that uh, 306 Bottom Wing does temporary duties in Kadena to support the Vietnam War. So I found out that, you know, I don't know, I've only been there a couple months. I was headed to uh, Okinawa. So um, on Okinawa, it was totally different. I mean, the uh, they were running war effort. We were flying B-52s off the base 24 hours a day. It was just constantly flying. We also had a squadron of uh, SR-71s stationed at Kadena. So in the early, well, mid-60s, 67, 68, I was able to see the SR-71s, which a lot of people didn't even know about. And it was like watching Star Trek, early Star Trek, to see that plane flying in or taking off. It just did not seem like it belonged in the sky. Well, uh, some um, folks may not know about the SR-71. Describe it as best you can, and tell us a little bit about it. Well, it looks like a long blackbird's what we called it. It's yeah. just real long. It's got two engines on it, um, and the pilots wear astronaut outfits because they do fly the edge of space. It leaks like a sieve when it sits on the ground. But when it's up in the air, all the ceilings close up, and it runs fine. At that time, it was classified, and we were not allowed to take pictures of it. You could see it, but you if you got caught taking pictures from the hills, because like I said, the runway was down below the hills, 
you could see it from the top of the hills if you went out there. You just did not want to get caught taking any pictures of it. But watching yeah. it take off was a real trip because it'd clear that runway, and then before you knew it, the nose of that plane pulled up, and them engines kicked in, afterburners or whatever, and that thing took off like a bullet. And that's about what it was like, just a bullet flying. It was when it was landing that you actually got to see it more because it would circle the runway before it got ready to land. But it was it just did not look like it belonged in the air, Pete. And like I said, at that time, that's when Star Trek had first come out, the first TV series. And it was like watching Star Trek when you see that plane flying. <laughs> and they had... Uh, they had the U, uh, yeah. They had the U two spy plane there, and comparing the two of them together, the U two looked like a little tiny flea compared to the SR seventy one. The SR was so much bigger. It was also a beautiful aircraft, beautifully designed. And you said it uh, took off like a bullet. People aren't going to believe this, but the SR seventy one flew faster than a bullet. Uh, I told my daughter that when we visited a. Air base in Macon, and I showed her SR seventy one. I said that goes faster than a bullet. She said, "Uh uh-uh. uh," you know, she <laughs> couldn't believe that. But it was an awesome aircraft. Um, did you lose any bombers while you're on Okinawa? Yeah, actually, we did. Uh, one night, I'm asleep, probably one o'clock in the morning, and uh, all of a sudden, there was a huge explosion. The whole building shook. I jumped up and threw open the curtain and there was a huge orange fireball going up the middle of the runway. And it's like say one o'clock in the morning, I'm half asleep. I thought World War Three had started, Pete. I thought, Oh Lord, they've done it. And it took me about ten seconds to realize if that was a nuke, I wouldn't be there to say, Oh Lord, they've done it. <laughs> but a B fifty two was taken off and it developed engine problems. Just as it cleared the runway, one of the engines flared out. And the pilot set the uh, plane back down, but when he did, he jarred a 750-pound wing bomb loose. And when they come off the wing, that automatically arms them. So he's going down the runway, slamming on brakes, trying to stop before he hits the end of the runway. And there's a 750-pound bomb sliding right behind him, following him. Uh, Two of the crew members were killed in it. The rest of them were able to get out. That bomb slid up under the B-52 and went off. And it ended up blowing a hole in that runway probably 70, 80 yards wide and about 40 to 50 foot deep. It blew a huge hole in that runway. I'm surprised that any of them got out alive. Yeah, considering how hard it is. The B-52s, you can parachute out, but it's a little harder to climb out. You know, they got ejection seats, and you got holes. That was like, Pete, when you flew, they told you if there's a problem, what did they tell you on how to get out of that plane? You got to wait for somebody else to get out, and then you jump out. I, that had, was to wait the till, I had to wait till the radar bombardier uh, ejected downward, and then I was supposed to prop myself and uh, fall out of the B-52. You couldn't jump out because... The suck, you would be sucked back up and bounce your head along the floor. Right. That's what I was told. Yeah, that was the only thing. It was like, well, I got to go out of this hole after that guy goes out. But the inside of the B-52 never realized until I was on one that it's multi-story on the inside. You know, it's not yeah. just one great big open plane. 
not, it is, and it's not uh, that uh, open either. It's pretty cramped in there. Okay, we're going to our last break, folks. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Marty on Okinawa. Got a few more stories about the war. Stay with us. Do you love classic and special interest cars? If so, listen to our podcast every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here on America's Web Radio. Or find us on your favorite podcast site, iTunes, Spotify, or any of the others out there. We'll talk about classic cars. We'll talk to car guys. We'll talk to clubs that are here at our facility here in Classic Auto Mall. And we'll also talk about Classic Auto Mall and how we can help you sell your classic or special interest car. So give us a listen every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Thanks. Start taking back our country from the liberal wokes by voting locally for conservative Republicans. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, we're back with Marty Robert, my brother from Air Force Intelligence, and he's uh, telling us about his experiences on Okinawa and a B-52 crash that was very, very tragic. But, Marty, let me ask you this. B-52s took off 24 hours off Okinawa. Did... Some of them just not come back. Did you lose some in action? We had, we did not lose any while I was there in action. Some came back with damage, and some came back with uh, crew members that were hurt. And we did have uh, one that don't. They never figured out exactly what happened, but one of the crew member ejected uh, while he was over there, and they never found him. He was missing in action and then finally declared dead. They never, or captured, they don't know, but he never turned up. Uh, but there was some damage done on him, but no, we never actually lost the entire plane itself. But when those planes took off, Pete, you know, you had 60,000 pounds of bombs on them. When they clear the runway leaving Okinawa, them wings were dipped so low, I've watched them swear, and they're going to hit the ocean. The wingtips are going to hit the ocean. Yeah. They, they carry this awesome bomb load. I, I watched B-52 strikes in Vietnam. It's one of the most awesome sights you'll ever experience, and you don't want to be too close to it either. I can guarantee you that. No, uh, you don't. That, yeah, when you were flying on the B-52s, you experienced something that I did not. Um, you had uh, one uh, experience in a refueling in midair. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was on the plane, and I was back, sitting in the back, sort of, and behind the uh, pilot co-pack. I was back there sitting down because, you know, they didn't really have a spare seat for me to sit in. But the pilot says, uh, Sergeant Brody, why don't you come on up in the cockpit? So I went up in the cockpit, and he says, go ahead and sit down in the co-pilot seat there. So co-pilot got up, and I sat down, you know, and I'm really digging on it, looking out of the cockpit of a B-52. It was special to me. And I'm sitting there just looking down at the ground, and it's flying. And all of a sudden, this giant black pipe, or silver pipe, rather, drops down in front of the cockpit outside the uh, windshield. And I look up, and there's a KC-135 getting ready to do a refuel. And it just scared the 
you know what out of me because they're not that far away. There's a huge plane right in front of us. And the pilot's just laughing his butt off going, I thought that might scare you a little bit. But sure enough, we were in the middle of a refueling. And it was quite a trip to see a, a KC-135 tanker that close to us and a hose in the middle of the windshield as you're looking out the cockpit window. So, yeah, that was definitely a, a surprise, to say the least. Yeah, and I was on a 50. Go ahead. Go ahead, Pete. Uh, I was going to say I was on a 50. Uh, <laughs> I was on a 52 once uh, that I, you know, went along to fly, compare my drawings out of McCoy, and we came back, and it's landing, and I'm going, oh, man, I'm going to be able to hit the bar here in another hour or so. And then the plane took off. And I thought, well, that's weird. So we circle around, and he comes down and lands again, and I'm, I'm getting ready to get off, and it took off again. So I asked the radar guy, what's going on? He says, uh, he's short on his takeoff and landing, so we're going to do this for a while. And that's all they did. They would take off and land, take off and land, never come to a stop, just touch down on the runway, roll down the runway, and take right back off again. That's called touch and goes. I'm, I'm touch and goes, exactly. Absolutely. Uh, were you ever intercepted when you were on some of these training missions? Were you ever intercepted by American fighters as they practiced their maneuvers? No, I wasn't. Now, I was we, on, uh, you know how we did those practice bombing runs? Well, I was on oh, yeah. 52 once off of Houston, and it's doing like a practice nuke run, and we're flying off the ocean, Gulf of Mexico there. 50 feet off the water, and then that B-52 goes into a giant barrel roll and just starts rolling up and over, and that's how they did their simulated bomb release because it's going to spit that bomb out. But I'm riding along. It's like a, it's the world's biggest roller coaster is what I thought of. What I was surprised, uh, there was a bombing range uh, in here in Florida. It was below Orlando. I forgot the name of it, but there was actually a bombing range here in Florida. Uh, yeah, there was. That? Yeah, I knew about it. It was decommissioned decades ago, but there was a bombing range where they would drop dummy bombs. Wow. It's now a neighborhood now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God they weren't live bombs. No. <laughs> Drive your car over 750-pounder, you know. All right, let me ask you this. You were in Okinawa. Now, that's basically Japanese territory. Did yes, you sir. enjoy Okinawa and the people? Yeah, that was my introduction to Asian life. In fact, I'm married to an Asian girl. My wife's Filipino. But, yeah, I enjoyed Okinawa. I loved the food. I dated some Japanese girls there. I loved the culture. Uh, the nightlife was... Okinawa was pretty wild then because, naturally, any city that's off a military base is going to be pretty wild with the bars and whatnot. Um, but the nightlife there, it was Japanese territory, but it was still held by Americans at that time. So come midnight, the bars were supposed to close. Well, they would close the front doors, but then if you're walking down the street, uh, Okinawa would come up and go, hey, G.I., party. And they go, where? And he'd grab a wooden barrel, move it, and there's a ladder going down. And you go down this tunnel and you walk up in the bar and the bar's going wide open. Music and everything. But from the outside, you couldn't t see a light on. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, we we had the same kind of junk in Vietnam too. It, it was uh, wherever the GIs go, it's it's party time. You yeah. mentioned to me, and this is a little bit uh, off our subject, but you mentioned to me that your brother was a chopper pilot in Vietnam. Tell us a little bit about your brother. Yeah, he's my half brother. His name was Jim, but he uh, he was lifetime Army. He was a warrant officer, so he uh, flew copter pilots in Nam. He ended up winning the Silver Star. Unfortunately, while he was there, he was exposed to Agent Orange. And in the end, Agent Orange, he just could not fight the cancers anymore. And it eventually took him. But he did serve up and through the first Gulf War. He retired from the Army right after the first Gulf War. Um, the uh, younger the pilots gunship? looked up to him. I beg your pardon? You say he flew the Cobra gunship? No, he didn't fly the Cobras. He flew some of the, uh, he dropped troops off. Okay, okay. Yeah, that that was a Slicks, the Hueys. Yeah, okay, yeah. He was shot at, he was injured. Uh, Like I said, he did win the Silver Star. I tried to find out from his daughter, my niece, uh, about his Silver Star. She had tried to find out from the military, but the military, they had had a fire, and you know how it is, records get destroyed, and they weren't able to find all the records on his Silver Star. That was at the warehouse up in where, Indianapolis that caught fire, I believe it was? I believe it was. It was Indiana. I'm sorry, St. Louis. St. Louis, thank you. Was it St. Louis? Well, thank you for the correction. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys lost their records and couldn't uh, get their health if I, benefits. If I can, David, is, uh, the space manager, no one knows a lot about that. Uh, uh, let David, me interrupt you David, one more David, time, David. if you don't mind. Since you brought the subject up, the sure. uh, records, the personnel records, the archives, our archives uh, in St. Louis, they closed in the 20, 29 March of 2020 because of COVID, and they're still not are open. If you want your records, you're SOL. And uh, I've we've been on top of this for months and months and months, and they're still drawing their salaries, but you can't get your records. So anybody that's listening now or in the future, I hope they will raise Kane with their senators and their representatives. I have, and it's ludicrous that they're still closed. I agree yeah, with right you. There. There, there's a lot of ludic- ludicrous things going on these days. Uh, boy, we don't want to get to that about what they're doing for the military. It's a disgrace and everything. All right, Marty, uh, I guess we're about ready to close. we got a little time left. Your experiences in the Air Force, uh, any regrets whatsoever? No, well, my biggest regrets, I didn't stay in, Pete. That's my regret. At the time I wanted out, I had met this girl that I liked and I, you know, didn't want to get transferred away from her. And in fact, I don't know about you, but they offered me a lot of money to reenlist. And I turned it down. Well, that was uh, 1970 for me, and I was still in Vietnam, and... Uh, I was going to get out uh, early out, and they said, we'll give you ten grand. That's a good chunk back then to stay in. And I said, nope, not going to do it. You know, after two and a half years, and I thought about a career too, uh, Marty, but after two and a half years in Nam, I was ready to 
go back yeah. to college and else with my life. But uh, Pete, they yeah. offered me twenty grand, and then they offered Woo. to reenlist me over a combat zone. They said, "We'll fly you to Okinawa. We'll fly over Vietnam. You can enlist over. You can reenlist over combat zone. It'll make it tax free." So that'd be twenty grand in your pocket, and I still turned it down. My mistake was they then offered me a job in D.C. as a civilian, and I turned that down. And that's where I made my mistake. I wish I'd have taken that because I would have had real good retirement, and you know, still been a civilian. Yeah, but, I tried after college. I tried to go with the D.I.A. That's Defense Intelligence Agency, and there I was uh, interviewing alongside four-star generals and, and full-bird colonels. <laughs> I didn't stand too much of a chance. Right. Uh, what, what did you do in civilian life, Mark? Well, I got out and I went to school under the GI Bill for a year. And then uh, I was working full-time construction and going to school full-time at night. And I got really tired and I kept getting hurt in construction sites, which is the name of the game when you work construction. I had a roommate working for the phone company. He talked me into going to work for a, a local phone company, installing phone equipment. And I thought, well, I'll take a break. I'm going to take a semester off, and then I'll go back to school. And he says, well, now we're required to travel. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, we, we work all over the country. Well, that semester off turned out to be the rest of my life. I ended up working for the phone company for 45 years traveling around the country. You did so, all 48 states, right? I beg your pardon? You touched your bases in all 48 states, I believe, didn't you? Yeah, well, I have been in every state except six or eight in the New England. Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, I have not been to. All the uh, you other don't need to go, hey, you're, you're, you're from the South. You don't need to go up there anyway. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I've been to Ever National Park west of the Mississippi. Yellow, I've been to Yellowstone seven times. Camped in bottom of the Snake River where uh, Evil Knievel jumped, missed. Uh, been all over Utah, Ever National Park there. Uh, went out to Seattle and decided to take the uh, coastline drive. So I drove from Seattle all the way down to San Diego, took every scenic tour out, went to Ever National Park. Then decided I'd head back into Nevada and visit some of the gambling casinos there and went on up to Utah. I've been all over the West. That's why I love the, the West. I love the Rocky Mountains. Marty, it, it, was, it was so nice to, to meet up with somebody that had been at the same base I was, served in the same section, uh, knew all the people that I knew, and it, it was just wonderful having you on the program, my brother. And thank you for your service. And you take care of yourself, Mr. Marty. We'll be talking later, okay? That sounds good. Thank you for inviting me on, Pete. It's been a pleasure talking to you, sir. Yes, sir. It's been great. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.